Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Lisa are on vacation. They're with some family this week, and so it is my privilege to be with you all this morning. My name is Ashley. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, And this week, I was thinking about how when I was a little girl, I used to sit on my grandmother's lap, and I would tug at this necklace that she always wore. Now, my grandmother passed away when I was very little, so I don't have a lot of memories of her. Most of my memories uh, are, are through stories and kind of this picture of myself just kind of tugging on this chain that she always had around her neck. Um, And when she was passing away, she actually took off this necklace and she handed it to my parents and she told them to put it in a drawer and to give it to me for when I was old enough. Uh, Now, as a kid, I discovered where the necklace was hiding and I would periodically go into the drawer and I would take it out and I would hold it and I would try to remember my grandmother and then I'd put it back in the drawer and it wasn't in a case or anything, it just kind of sat in this drawer. And so over the years, it became tangled and knotted and just anything but something resembling a necklace. It was just this knotted up ball of chain and a charm. And uh, as I got closer to being a teenager, when, when my parents would give me this necklace, it was so knotted up that my mom really thought we would have to take it somewhere to get it fixed, to get the chain untangled. Um, but one night, I was just determined. I was about 16 years old, and I was just having a teenage angst kind of day, and I decided that I was going to unknot this necklace, whatever it took. And so for hours, I laid in my bed with this necklace, and I just untangled every knot, uh, every chain, every loop, until the necklace became wearable. Um, And after I was done, I just had this overwhelming sense of accomplishment, this value of this necklace that I could finally wear. I felt so connected to my grandmother, and I was so happy that I was able to untangle this necklace. And after I'd worn it for some time, I was reading in a magazine, uh, and I came across an ad. And the ad looked a lot like the necklace that I had been wearing. Now, this was very early internet days, like the days of Ask Jeeves. And um, so nobody was really Google searching for the origin of their necklace at the time. So I'd never really researched where my necklace had come from. But suddenly, I was staring at this ad for Tiffany & Co. and looking at something that looked just like the necklace that I had been wearing for several months. And because the necklace already had value to me, I I never really had a curiosity beyond it coming from my grandmother. But for the first time, I began to wonder, could this actually be a Tiffany necklace? And so I turned over the necklace, and sure enough, on the bottom of my necklace were the words Tiffany and Co. inscribed, along with 14K. Now this necklace that was so wadded up and unusable, it was just this ball of a piece of jewelry, it had a great value that was always there. But until it became unknotted and untangled, it was unusable, it was not fruitful, it was not all that it was designed to be, even though the intrinsic value was always there. It was not until the knots were worked out, until it was unwatted, that the fullness, the glory of this necklace became all that it was intended to be. 
Now, last, way, last week, Pastor Mike preached a message about brokenness to fruitfulness. And for those of you who are not with us, he said this. He said that it is the legal promise for all believers to move from barrenness to fruitfulness. And he gave us three words. He said maturity, separation, and blame. He said that maturity is the responsibility of the believer to take responsibility for their inner emotional lives. That we have a responsibility to respond to the spirit, to take responsible for our emotional responsibility for our emotional well-being, and that we need to separate ourselves from people and situations to see who we really are, and we need to stop blaming other people for the way that we respond to situations and circumstances. And he said that true spiritual fruit comes from a priority on our inner lives and that this takes time. He ended his message by saying that it is the patient person that wins, that through frustration, if we stay the course, if we lean in, if we allow the Holy Spirit who is patient to be produced in us, then we will be fruitful people that we were designed and intended to be. Now, my necklace was knotted and tangled, but it was sealed with a great value. A Tiffany seal that took a long time for it to come into being, for it to be this true Tiffany necklace that it always was. The intrinsic value was always there, but it was a process of untangling and unweaving for my necklace to be all that it was designed to be. And now I still wear this necklace. I'm wearing it right now. Um, every day, just like my grandma did. And I hope to one day pass it on to my daughter who will pass it on to more generations. But I am bougie. And so I had this necklace that was once gold, dipped in white gold for my wedding. Um, and the thing about white gold is this, is that white gold is not pure. And so that means that periodically, from time to time, I have to take my necklace back to the jewelers and get it re-dipped in white gold. And also, because it's white gold, I had to get a new chain, which I love, but sometimes my hair gets caught in it, and I constantly have to do this, and in the wintertime, when I wear wool sweaters, I get these fuzzies that get stuck in it, and I have to take it off, ladies are nodding, you know what I'm talking about, and I have to take it off, and I have to get tweezers, and I have to intricately pull at my chain so I don't break it, but I remove all the little bits that get stuck in there. The reality is that after 20 years of wearing this necklace, I still have to go through a process for it to be all that it was intended to be. And the reality is that this is what our lives are like. We have been given the Spirit of God. We have a seal, a Tiffany stamp, that the Holy Spirit is within us, but it is a process for us to become fruitful. We often hear messages or we read books or we listen to podcasts and we think, if I do X, then I will get Y. But the reality is more than any other time in history, we have access to things at a quicker speed than ever before. And so because of this, we want process to be quick. The truth is that becoming the fruitful people that we were designed and intended to be is often a long, slow, repetitive process. More than any other time, we have the ability to get what we want, when we want it, and where we want it. We are conditioned to want microwave results, but quick is not the speed of love. Now, Kerry Newhoff is an author, and he has this quote that I have hanging in my house, and it says this, love has a speed, and it's slower than I am. 
We often so quickly jump from one thing to the next thing instead of leaning into the tension that the Father is asking us to hold. Oftentimes we look to problem solve when he's saying this is a tension that I want you to hold. It is through tensions, it's through friction that life and fruit are produced. And it is because of his great love for us that we can trust the process, that we can lean in when the Father asks us to lean in. Now, I um, am a stereotypical girl, and I love rom-com movies. And um, the thing about rom-com movies is they're all about this moment of falling in love. When you find the one that you've been looking for, and they've been there the whole time, and your heart stops, and your palms are sweaty, and you are just so in love with that person. But the reality is, is that that kind of love is a hormonal chemical response to attraction and excitement. And while those things are good, that is not what love is. Love is enduring. Love is committed. Love stays with you. It is kind. It is patient. And that's the kind of love that that God sent his son with to this earth to break the separation gap between the heavenlies and humanity. It's that kind of love that we get to lean into. We have a God who knows us all the way to the bottom and loves us all the way to the top. It's this kind of love that allows us to lean in when the Holy Spirit is asking us to lean into the frustrations in our lives. It's this kind of love that allows us to listen as he prompts us, as he presses, but because we've been conditioned in a world where we celebrate falling in love more than the committed kind of love, sometimes we forget that our Father is committed to us in every way. He loves us. He's committed to us by love as we allow the Holy Spirit to work and to move and to press on the places in our lives. And he will stick with us for as long as the untangling takes. He will never leave us and he will never forsake us. These are the promises that he has in his word. And often the process of becoming fruitful will be longer than you ever anticipate, but his love will remain with you through it all. Now, this idea of waiting on the Lord and trusting in his processes, it's one that is seen all throughout scripture. We can find it all throughout scripture, but one gentleman in particular uh, that I think really shows us how to wait on the Lord and trust that the Lord will do what he says he's gonna do, that the Lord will produce fruit is King David. Now, King David was not always King David. Uh, he was a shepherd boy. And uh, the, the Israelites cried out to God and said that they wanted a king. And so God provided a king for them in the man of King Saul. And King Saul uh, was anointed. He was appointed by God. But King Saul's inner life was a mess. And he disobeyed God. And because he disobeyed God, God's spirit left him. And so God tells Samuel, the prophet, that it is time to anoint a new king over Israel. But Saul was still ruling over Israel. And so Samuel is sent on a mission to a specific town, to a specific family, to find the one that the Lord wants to anoint as king. And so he goes to Bethlehem, Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and he goes to the house of Jesse. And he goes into the house, and Jesse presents all of his sons, and one by one, the Lord tells Samuel, not it, not it, not it. And then he gets to the end of the sons and he says to Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, my youngest is in the field. He's a shepherd. 
And so Samuel tells Jesse, send him, send him into the household. And 1 Samuel 16 tells us this. So Jesse sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had fine, a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Here is an unexpected shepherd teenager who is anointed as king. The presence of the Lord is given to him as a seal, as a promise. He has olive oil dripping from his forehead to show that he is anointed as king, but Saul is still ruling as king. And there is no roadmap, there's no check boxes, there's no step-by-step -step guide to how and when David will become king, but he has a seal and he has a promise. And so at this time, Saul knows that the spirit of the Lord has left him and Saul is tormented. He's depressed. And so his men, his crew, they're like, you know what might benefit Saul is perhaps somebody who can play music for him, who can soothe him. And so his men send for a musician from Bethlehem, from the house of Jesse, a shepherd boy named David who plays the harp. And so David comes into the house of Saul and he plays the harp. And as he plays, as he worships, as each note builds on top of the next, the tormenting spirit begins to leave Saul. And so Saul loves David. He loves that David is in his household. Now, some time has passed, and uh, David is no longer playing the harp for Saul, but Saul is still tormented. He still has this inner turmoil in his life, um, and now Saul's a little, I mean, David's a little older, and so perhaps he's unrecognizable to the household of Saul, um, but David's brothers are now serving in the Israelite army, and David uh, looks nothing like a king at this point. He actually looks like something more resembling Little Red Riding Hood, because he is often traveling between his father's house and his brothers who are in the Israelite armies. And it's during one of these trips that he discovers that Goliath, the great giant, is tormenting the people of God. And they don't have any warrior that's willing to fight Goliath. They are desperate. They're looking for somebody to come and save them. And David, a shepherd boy whose only credentials are a slingshot and having killed a bear and a lion says, I'll do it. I'll kill Goliath. And so because they're desperate, Saul says, go right on ahead. You can, you can face Goliath. And David does because the spirit of the Lord is on him. It only takes him one shot with a rock and a slingshot and he takes out Goliath. And this is what supercharges David to become a great warrior for the Israelite armies. He's put as the head of the, of the armies. He's a warrior and people are celebrating David. He's still not the king, but he is a great warrior. Now, as the people begin to celebrate David, Saul becomes jealous and he becomes envious. And he begins to realize that the people actually really love David. And so he begins to plot and think of ways that he can destroy and kill David. And one of the ways that he thinks he can kill David is by saying he can marry one of his daughters. And so he says, David, I wanna give you one of my daughters to marry, and he says, but first you're gonna have to kill a certain number of Philistines. And so thinking that he'll get killed in the process, he tells him that he has to go do this in order to get the bride, and sure enough, David goes out, and he kills all the Philistines, and he gets Saul's daughter as a bride. 
and Saul is just growing and seething with anger. He's determined now that David has to die because now he sees that the spirit of the Lord is on David and he sees that now his own daughter is in love with him and he's jealous and the jealousy grows and it grows and it grows. David has been anointed to be king, but his life is getting tangled and wadded up and it doesn't look anything like kingship as Saul is determined to kill David. Now what's interesting is David has this uh, close relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan acts as uh, an advocate, a mediator for David, even saying, I'll be your eyes and your ears. I'll listen to my father's plans and I will warn you. And I will tell you if my father really does want to kill you. And so they come up with this plan where David will hide in the woods and Jonathan will scope out what his father's gonna do and then he'll come back and he'll speak in code. And he says, if my father doesn't wanna kill you, I'm gonna shoot arrows and I'll tell my servant that the arrows will be on one side. But if my father does want to kill you, I will yell, keep going, the arrows are beyond you. And so here's where we find 1 Samuel 20. It says, in the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrows had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about this, only Jonathan and David. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go and carry them back to town. Now I shared this story with you because I want you to see just the state of tangled that David's life is. He's having to hide out in the woods while Saul's own son is scoping out if it's safe for him to move from one place to the next. And his son says, it's not safe for you. The arrows are beyond you. You have to go into hiding because my father is set on killing you. This you can be sure of. He wants you dead yesterday. And so Jonathan and David, they say their goodbyes, and this is what begins this kind of tug and pull, this, this almost dance between David and Saul, as Saul is continually growing in rage and jealousy as he chases after David for his life as he hides in the cave. Saul's growing in rage and he's chasing David and David is hiding and David is still having successes in battle, but he's hiding in a cave and he's writing Psalms to his God. And through this time, David is becoming untangled. Now he's not king yet, but we can see as we read how David is developing his inner life that he begins to ask God about his every move. Should I go here? Should I stay? Should I leave? Do I go now? Do I wait? And he's listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit who prompts him when to go and when to stay and when to hide. And at one point, he even has the opportunity to kill King Saul, sneaking up behind him while Saul is going to the bathroom and cutting the garment of, of King Saul. But he stops because that's David's timing. That's not the timing of the Lord. And he knows in that moment that it is better to trust the process of the Lord than to try to make something happen on his own. He has the seal of kingship on him from boyhood, but he is not yet a king, but his inner life is being developed as he believes the fruit of God's timing is far better than his own. 
And this back and forth, this tug and pull, this twist, this turn, this untangling, this unwadding, this reshaping, and this reforming, it's in this place inside of David's life where we don't yet see the fruit of kingship, but we can see what's taking place on the inside as he writes the Psalms. David wrote many Psalms while he was hiding out in the cave from King Saul, and I wanted to share a few with you this morning. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. That Psalms, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is David hiding in a cave from someone who wants to murder him. There is nowhere safe for him, but this is what is on the inside of David as he is hiding. He writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. David is no longer just a shepherd boy. David is no longer just a warrior, warrior in Israel's armies, but he is becoming the king that he was anointed for so many years earlier. He's cultivating this inner life of worship, this inner love relationship with the God who loves him and knows him all the way to the bottom. And the fruit of the spirit is being produced in him as he writes about the faithfulness of his God, the God who is committed to him, the God who is faithful. These Psalms that we read, they're not moans and gripes of a man complaining that he's not yet king. This is not David in a cave going, you told me I would be king and now here I am in a cave. This is a guy who is crying out because he has a hope. He has a joy that's outside of his circumstances and he's holding on to the promise of the anointing that was placed on him so many years earlier. And David cries out that he is like an olive tree. Here's this strong, mighty warrior and he's not saying, oh God, I am like a mighty lion. No, oh God, I am like an olive tree planted in your house. Now, I'm not a plant person. I kill lots and lots of plants. I try so hard, but they just die. I don't know why. And I'm definitely not a garden person. That sounds really scary. From seed to bloom, no way, no how. Can't do that. 
But one piece of vegetation that I would definitely never, ever want to even think about touching is an olive tree. This is the closest that I will ever have to having an olive tree. And that's because it takes eight years before a piece of fruit is produced on an olive tree. Eight years before one of these green olives pops out. But when an olive tree produces life, it lasts for generations and generations. And there are olive trees all over the world that have been here for thousands and thousands of years. And this is not like plant a seed and come back eight years later. This is plant a seed, cultivate, water, prune, and eight years later you will see the fruit. And this is what David is crying out as he's hiding in a cave. I am like an olive tree planted in your house, O God, because David knows that the timing of the Lord is perfect and that he is the one who will produce fruit at the right time and fruit that will remain. And 15 years after David is anointed as king, David is appointed as king. This is 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him as king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. 15 years is a long time between a promise and its fulfillment. But love has a speed and it's slower than we are. Through those 15 years, David is leaning in and doing what the Lord is asking of him. He's not perfect, but he worships his God. He seems to know that the promises, that the processes, that those things of the Lord are good, that God is faithful, but God is not hasty. And now waiting any kind of uncomfortable amount of time for the fulfillment of any kind of promise is very counterintuitive to the world that we live in today. We are accustomed to having progress in an instant. I remember as a child getting a catalog and looking through it and circling the doll that I wanted and then going to the order form and writing the SKU number and sticking it in an envelope and mailing it away to a company and then waiting for weeks for the doll to arrive. But we no longer have to view catalogs to find what we want. We no longer need to mail in order forms and we no longer have to wait for weeks for the item that we want. We can at any moment, from anywhere in the world, at any time, have whatever it is that we're looking for. I could decide right now that I need a gallon of milk and in two hours or less I could have it. But the kind of waiting that the Lord asks us to wait, this kind of waiting that David had, this is not a passive kind of waiting. And because we live in a world where everything is designed to be more efficient, we've believed the lie that waiting wastes time. But waiting is not a waste of time. It is not passive. It is active. And David writes about this in Psalm 37 as a much older man. He writes this, commit everything you do to the Lord, trust him, and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn, and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. David wrote this as an older man. 
but he knew the untangling process. He knew how long it took for him to be anointed as king before he ever became the king. He had experienced the timing that it took to move from barrenness to fruitfulness. And so he's writing about waiting and he knows that there is a joy that can stand outside of your circumstance as you wait. But we've bought into this lie that if we don't see fruit produce in an instant that something isn't happening. But that's not true. Passive waiting is not what the Lord asks of us. It's not the kind of waiting that David had when he was in the cave. This is an active kind of waiting, a kind of waiting that has hope in the promises of the Lord, the kind of waiting that knows that God will do what he says he will do. It's the kind of waiting that David had. This form of waiting, it's about being hopeful. It's about being present in this untangling process. It's about a bringing forth almost in the same way that a, a woman delivers a baby. It's a labor. It's an active thing when we wait on the Lord. The fruitfulness that the Lord wants to produce in your life is going to take time, and that is because love has a speed that moves slower than you do. Now, several weeks ago, uh, a couple months ago, actually, my daughter asked me to run a 5K with her for her school. Now, there are not many, if any, people that I would train to run a 5K for, but for my 10-year-old daughter, I would. And so I began to do this Couch to 5K app, and at one point, I asked her to go running with me so that I could see what this was going to look like. And that girl took off running. And I just thought, she's gonna smoke me. She's gonna be so fast. And everything in me as I began to train for this race was focused on don't embarrass your daughter as she finishes the finish line and you're still like a ways back. And so I was really focusing on the speed of this race and how fast I could accomplish it. But the day of the race came and not even two minutes into the race, Lucy looked at me and she said, mommy, I have a cramp. And so everything that I had been thinking we were going to do slowed way down. And the race looked a lot more like me slowing down to her than me speeding up. It looked a lot more like me keeping pace with her, keeping in step with her, calling her name and reminding her that we could slow down, but we could not stop. Because love has a speed and it's slower than we are. And I believe that this is what the Lord is asking of his people. He's asking if we would allow the process of moving from barrenness to fruitfulness to take place at the speed in which it needs to. He's asking if we would trust him with the process. In the same way that David inquired of the Lord of his direction, he's asking us to lean in and to listen to the places that he's pressing. He's keeping in step. He's calling you to stay in step him as he says, slow down and calls your name and says, you can slow down, but you can't stop because fruit is being produced. You are valuable. You really are a Tiffany necklace. Now I read a book this week by Andy Crouch and this book is called The Life We're Looking For. And it's a book all about reclaiming relationship in a technological world. And the book talks a lot about how, as a society, we are more connected than we've ever been before. We have things like social media, we have the internet, we are more connected to one another in ways than we ever were before, but we are lonelier people than we've ever been before. And he talks about this word impact. And he says impact is kind of this hot word that we use now. We talk about technology impacting culture. And he writes this. 
He says, until a generation ago, not only was impact never used as a verb, but it was almost entirely in a negative context. A wisdom tooth could be impacted, or Taya Leone might need to be dispatched, like in the film Deep Impact, to prevent the impact of an asteroid on Earth. Impact denotes a concentrated force over a short amount of time, and the laws of physics dictate that most impacts are unpleasant. We might wonder why we would choose a verb associated with an event that will raise your insurance rates to require a trip to the doctor as a suitable metaphor for the transformation of culture. The answer is, of course, that we are fascinated by the power of instantaneous concentrated force. And he does say that sudden events can make a difference. We're not discounting those, but that we're actually looking for a word more like influence. He says, we're looking for something more like what Jesus said himself, that the kingdom was like a mustard seed, something negligibly small, small, even seemingly inert, that it is in fact capable of growing into something capacious and beneficial for the world. Perhaps this is why Jesus and the psalmist drew on the metaphor of fruit-bearing trees. And then he shares a quote that his friend shared with him. Most of us want to be a force, but Jesus calls us to be a taste. And I would add that Jesus calls us to be a sound. You see, David was a worshiper. He saw what worship could do all those years earlier as he played the harp for King Saul. He saw how the spirits would move back as he worshiped as one note build on top of the next. We even see this after he becomes king in 2 Samuel. David is dancing half naked like a wild man before his God as the Ark of the Covenant comes into the city of David. And his wife tells him, you're making a fool of yourself. But David says, I will become even more undignified than this because he has learned what worship does. This summer, we're gonna be intentional together as a church family to spend some extended periods of worship together. And Pastor Mike and Pastor Lisa will be teaching more on this in the weeks to come. But I have to tell you a little secret about worship. Worship builds. Worship brings the present, the presence of God into the room. The picture that I get is like a marching band that you can hear out in the distance, but as you worship, the marching band comes into the room. You see, each note, each word, it builds one on top of another as we lean in, as we press in, as we worship our God in the midst of our circumstances. Each note is intentional. Worship is not an instantaneous fix. It's through worship, though, that we build into the presence of the Lord. All of the songs that we sing, as the music builds, it's all in unison to reveal beautiful masterpiece that always was, but each note, each word, building one on top of the other brings us into the presence of the Lord. David knew this, and the Father is asking that we would know the same. And I believe that this is what the Spirit is speaking to me this week. I believe this is what the Spirit is speaking to us this week as a church family. Will you trust him with the, the process? If you can trust him to bring you from barrenness to fruitfulness, will you trust him with the timing of this process? Will you recognize that slowness does not mean that there is no progress? Would you trust that while you wait for fruit to be produced, 
that whatever he's pressing in on, whatever he's calling you to is intentional so that you can step into the fullness of all that you were designed and created to be. Will you listen to the spirit who tells you to go on because the arrows are still ahead of you? Will you worship him as you allow one note to build, one on top of the next, slowly with precision and sometimes with tweezers as the fuzzies get stuck in the chain? Will you worship your God in the midst of whatever's going on and will you trust him with the process? Gabe's gonna lead us in a song today, so would you stand? And would you choose to enter in? Would you choose to lean in to where the spirit is leading you this morning?